From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters. I'm Debbie Millman, here with an archival episode of the podcast. Last week, we heard that Heather Armstrong passed away. She was only 47 years old, and I want to express my deepest condolences to her family. Heather Armstrong was one of the world's very first bloggers. She started her website, Deuce.com, in 2001, and pioneered a new genre of online writing. It was frank, funny, acerbic, and real. She quickly became one of the most popular writers on the Internet, so much so the New York Times appointed her Queen of the Mommy Bloggers. But Heather was more than that. As Liz Lenz wrote in her op-ed in the Washington Post last week, if she'd been a man, she'd be a humorist and a memoirist. But she was a woman, so she was a mommy blogger. Heather joined me on Design Matters way back in 2011, and she was quintessentially Heather, utterly unafraid of telling it like it is. In recent years, along with her writing a candid book about her brutal battle with depression, Heather suffered from alcoholism. Most recently, she perplexed her readers and fans with troubling posts about her stand on trans rights, and I had to rethink my perspective of her writing at the time. I didn't know Heather before our interview in 2011, but I met her five years later at the Webstack conference in New Zealand, where we were both speaking. We had dinner one evening with Cindy Gallup and sat overlooking the stunning Wellington landscape. At the time, Heather was rethinking her business and what she wanted in the future. She seemed hopeful and inspired by what was possible. I want to honor Heather's legacy by replaying our episode from 2011. Among many other things, we talked about depression and suicide, so please be forewarned. Blogging is only about 13 years old, but already it seems like it's been around forever. Facebook and Twitter now use up most of the energy that people used to pour into their blogs, which weren't read by a lot of people anyway. Unless, of course, you happen to be Andrew Sullivan or Heather Armstrong, whose blog, Deuce, gets over 100,000 daily visitors. What do visitors to Deuce come to read about? Her family, her pets, her favorite music, her experience of depression, and what it's like to live in Salt Lake City as an ex-Mormon. But really, visitors come because Heather Armstrong is there, waiting with vibrant personal anecdotes and opinions, photos, videos, and links to the world beyond. She's also written a New York Times bestselling book, It Sucked and Then I Cried, How I Had a Baby, a Breakdown, and a Much-Needed Margarita. Heather Armstrong joins me from her home in Salt Lake City. Welcome, Heather. Hello, how are you? Very good. It's great to have you here on Design Matters. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Well, your first post on Deuce, 10 years ago, was a poem about carnation milk. It is no longer on the site, but I was wondering if you could recite the poem for us. I I can, actually. It was um, something that I, one of those things that sticks in your brain, one of the few things that sticks in your brain from college. Oh, Um, okay, good. (laughs) um, It was, uh, carnation milk is the best in the land. I sit here with a can in my hand. 
No tits to pull, no hater pitch. You just punch a hole and then a son of a bitch. <laughs> you probably can't play that, but that's the poem. No, we can, we can. Okay. That's fantastic. I'm so excited. So can you talk about the name deuce? I know it's a word that was constructed by texting the words dude, but I can't figure out how you got deuce from dude. I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and everyone in Los Angeles calls each other dude. Your boss calls you dude. You call your boss dude. And I was instant messaging coworkers, and we would type out dude, but we would do it dramatically like, dude, no way. And we would <laughs> D-O-O-O-O-O-O-O-D-E. And I would always, in, in attempting to emphasize dude, I would always, always do D-O-O-C-E on accident. And it got to be so ridiculous. It just became a nickname. So people actually do call you Deuce. Oh, yes. Everybody actually who reads my site and sees me in public says, Deuce. (laughs) (laughs) So you were born and raised in a small suburb of Tennessee, but moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, to go to Brigham Young University, which, from what I understand, you consider to be the most horrible place on Earth, even worse than Disneyland. And so, of course, the question is, what's wrong with Disneyland? Oh, I hate Disneyland. (laughs) Maybe because I didn't go as a kid. I only experienced it as an adult, and it was just uh, the lines and having to pay for everything, and it just seemed like one big contrived lie. (laughs) (laughs) Have Have you taken Lita or Marlo to Disneyland? I have not, but my husband has very fond memories of going as a child, and so I let him take our oldest last year, and they had a fantastic time, and I was more than happy to stay home. So your two daughters, Lita is named after a family relative, but Marlo is a very unusual name. And I was wondering if Marlo was named after Marlo Thomas. She is actually. Um, Oh, I love that. I love that. We had picked out a name for a a boy. So when we found out it was going to be a girl, we had not stocked up on any ideas. And we went the rounds for several months. And then one day, the publisher of is it Free to Be Me and You or the Marlo Thomas book yes. that's been around for ages? The publisher sent me this new revamped copy of it, and I just took one look at the name, saw it there on the book, and I looked at John and I said, I think I know what it's going to be. It just hit me. It's such a unique name, and um, it's not very popular, but it's round and it fills up your mouth, and I liked the way it sounded. It's a great name, and I think um, Marlo would probably be really, really happy that you named your daughter after her. (laughs) So when you started blogging, you were working at an internet company. But when you were younger, what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? I, um, growing up, always thought that I would end up being a teacher, an English teacher. And I actually went to a special program during my sophomore year in high school that was dedicated to prospective teachers. I always thought I'd be in front of a classroom of kids. And then when I graduated college, it didn't appeal to me anymore for some reason. I discovered graphic design and how much it fulfilled me and um, went in that direction. So what were you doing at the internet company? Were you doing design work? Were you doing coding? Well, I started out just as an assistant to someone who taught me uh, Photoshop. So I had never been formally trained in graphic design at all. I just basically was an apprentice to someone. And I spent many, many months teaching myself the ins and outs of Photoshop and Illustrator. And from there, went on to design websites and ended up in Los Angeles designing websites. So what made you decide to blog to begin with? 
Well, I'd been a writer. I dabbled in writing in high school, and then I dabbled a little bit in music reviews in college. And I'd seen other websites. I'd seen blogs out there. And I thought, what a what a great way to exercise not only my graphic design skills, but also my writing, that muscle. And it's something that I could design myself and edit myself, and it could be anything I wanted it to be. And for me, it was like publishing my own little magazine. This was my way of keeping in touch with my friends across the country. And I emailed the URL to about a half a dozen of them and said, if you guys want to keep up with me, this is what I'm doing. So you started writing about your daily life. You were writing about music. You were writing about culture. You were also writing about the people that you were working with, um, which I assume you never figured that they'd ever find. And then somehow not only did they find it, but your family found it. You were writing rather candid commentary, which is no longer available to the public, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And you got fired. You got fired from your job for writing about the work that you were doing and the people that you were working with on your blog, which really created a big cultural discussion about privacy on the Internet. And I read recently, I don't remember who, who said it, but somebody was writing about being surprised that you never sued to keep your job. And I was wondering if you'd ever thought about that and if you ever even attempted that. I got a lot of legal advice when it happened. And if it were to happen today to someone, someone today I think could probably have the grounds to come back and say, no, you can't tell me what to do in my own time. Except that, you know, back in 2002 when it happened, First of all, I was in California, and that's an at-will work state. They can fire you for any reason whatsoever, as long as it's not discriminatory. And um, the legal advice that I got at the time was, you really have no recourse. And I really felt like I had brought it upon myself. I think um, I was almost willing myself to get fired because I hated that job so badly. And after it happened... I had to have a a really, really long talk with myself. And I had a a bit of a midlife crisis because here I was, you know, I graduated with honors from college and I was- Well, you're the valedictorian, Yeah, I was a valedictorian in high school. And here I I got fired for doing something monumentally stupid. But were you writing about things that were that bad? I mean, I know that you wrote about your boss talking about ordering something from Prada online, but but really? Is that such a terrible thing to write I about? I know, I know. It wasn't, there were no trade secrets revealed and I didn't call our product bad or anything. It was mostly just to let off some steam about working in a very cold office and having everybody think they're much more powerful than they are. But when I look back at the, at the experience and from what I've learned about life, you sort of draw energy towards you by what you're putting out. And at that time, I was not putting out good things. And I got what was coming to me. I really think so. So all the original posts from Deuce's beginning are gone. Um, and that's also because you were talking about your family. How long did it take you to uh, reconcile with your family after they found out what you were writing about? My family found it. Uh, my brother Googled my name. And of course, it was the first website to come up. And um, he forwarded it to them. And I was on the phone with both my mother and my father that night, and my father didn't speak to me for three or four months. And my mom would call every other day crying, wondering what she had done in my childhood to cause me to do this. (laughs) So here you are 10 years ago, or a little less than 10 years ago, you got fired from your job. You had your family completely uh, alienated from you, and yet you did indeed continue to blog, and now your blog is one of the most famous blogs, if not the most famous blog in the world. 
I also understand that you proposed to John, your husband, on his blog. Yes, So I did. blogging has really had just sort of this monumental place in your life in totality. Yeah, I've documented my engagement with him. I documented proposing to him. I've documented the births of both of my children. I get the sense from reading about your relationship with John that you felt that it was somehow destined in talking about how you had this feeling that he was going to be your husband or that he was going to be a significant person in your life. And would you agree with that? Yes, actually. I'm I met John when John was married to his previous wife, and that's not as scandalous as it sounds. We were both living in in Utah at the time, and he was married, and I remember meeting him for the first time. I had heard about him from some of my friends, and when I met him for the first time, I remember thinking, what a shame, because I, I felt an immediate connection with him, but I gave up completely on the idea because he was married, and it wasn't for another four or five years when we still remained friends, you know, here and there. And he contacted me when I was living in Los Angeles and he contacted me at a time when I was dating around and I was sowing my oats and I was having a blast as a single person. And he contacted me and he said, I'm getting a divorce and I'm looking for work in Los Angeles. Do you have any leads? And I said, actually, yes, I have several leads. And we had a conversation online that day. And when we were done, I called my father and I said, I want you to write this name down because this is the name of the man that I'm going to marry. Wow. Yeah. And we were married uh, a year and a few months later. So we came to Los Angeles and then you just we, found your soulmate. He, he came to Los Angeles and moved right into my house. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So you were both raised as Mormons and you both left the church. Yes. Do you get a lot of flack for that from your readers? No, I think my, we've been pretty upfront and open about it. And, um, you know, I get the occasional hate mail from a Mormon who doesn't understand. You know, when I make fun of Mormonism, I'm really making fun of the 14-year-old, very earnest and very paranoid Mormon that I was. It's the essence of her that I'm making fun of. You know, my mother and my father and all of my brothers and sisters and their children, all of them are very active. And they still read my website and can laugh at themselves. And so I, I think um, anyone who does give me a hard time about it doesn't understand that I'm, I'm doing it to celebrate the eccentricities of Mormons. Why were you so paranoid when you were 14? What was, what was happening? Oh, I thought, I, was, I thought that any dirty thought that entered my head would mean that my eternal salvation was compromised. <laughs> I <laughs> repented of my first kiss. <laughs> wow. I went to the bishop and said, we need to sit down and have a talk. I kissed someone and I'm, I feel terrible. <laughs> what did he tell you? He laughed at me. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you decide to leave the church? How did, you, how did your family manage to deal with that? Well, I left the church basically the day that I graduated BYU. It was kind of a long time coming. And for me, it was one of the most important decisions of my life in terms of setting myself free and in terms of discovering who I really was. And it was extremely difficult for my family. So difficult that I don't think that they realized that it wasn't just a phase until they found my website. And my website was basically, oh, this is not a phase. This is who she is. And John had the same trajectory. He he was brought up as a Mormon and then left the church. Right. It must be interesting to share that background together. I think that's one of the things that has brought us so close is that we have a shared history. I remember dating guys who had never met a Mormon before. And there's a lot that, 
that they didn't understand about who I was because I'm so informed by that upbringing and so is he. And there's so much about me that he gets intrinsically because he experienced it himself. Now, shortly after you had your first daughter, which you did document on your blog, you experienced a a severe depression that led to a short stay in a mental hospital. And you credit your readers with helping to save your life. How did they do that? Well, as I was going through postpartum, it was so severe that my talk therapist kept threatening that she was going to have me committed. And I was always threatening, don't ever do that to me, don't do this to me, because I didn't want to be the woman who had to check herself into a hospital. And I especially didn't want my audience to know that I was that far gone. But as the depression got worse and I revealed bits of it here and there, the response that I got from my readers was so supportive that it drew it more out of me and helped me articulate what I was going through more. And the more I did that, the more supportive they were. And so many people wrote to tell me, listen, first of all, what you're experiencing is not out of the norm. And second of all, it's scary and you need to get help because if you don't get help, something bad is going to happen. And so many of my readers reached out to me and gave me that nudge that I needed. And they, and a lot of them said, listen, we'll be here when you get back. Trust us. Just go get the help you need. And one morning, about six and a half months after the birth, I looked at my husband and I said, if you go to work today, I will not be here when you get back. And you need to take me to the hospital right now. And it was their voices in my head saying, please take care of yourself. We'll be here when you get back. That really led me to do it. And so you document this all in your wonderful book, Uh, It Sucked and Then I Cried, How I Had a Baby, a Breakdown, and a Much-Needed Margarita. And I actually wanted to read a brief excerpt from that experience because I think it's so poignant and so honest and so well-written. So I'm just going to read a little bit of an excerpt. I kept thinking that my depression would go away, that my self-medication was going to work. But I should have known better than anyone else that this just doesn't go away. In fact, it festered and grew until one morning I found myself throwing things in the general direction of loving and wonderful people who did not deserve to have things thrown in their general direction. It had entered my bloodstream and was systematically choking me to death. I'd get up in the morning having slept only an hour or two and couldn't imagine living another minute. The expanse of the day unfolded before me, and I couldn't comprehend how I was going to distract my cranky baby for the next 12 hours. There'd be walks and more walks and books and rattles and moving from the porch to the sidewalk and back to the porch to delay her disappointment just a few more minutes. And then there were the moments when I couldn't do anything to stop her from screaming at me, and it felt like she was sad that she didn't have a mother who knew what the hell she was doing. I used to be sad only in the morning, and after 11 a.m. I was okay. But the morning started to turn into afternoons, then into nights, and soon it got to the point where I was never okay. There wasn't a moment in the day that I looked forward to. I didn't see an end to this cycle of stress, and I found myself asking much too often, why go on? So, Heather, what was the answer to that? What made you go on? How did you, how did you recover from that? I recovered from that because I, um, one of the best postpartum doctors in the country happens to work at the University of Utah, where I went to the hospital. When I checked into the hospital, honestly, the day that I told my husband to check me in, was that was going to be the day that I killed myself because I, I couldn't unclench my hands. I was so anxious. And 
when I went to the hospital, they didn't have any beds in the unlocked part of the hospital. So they basically stuck me with the craziest people on earth. And it was the scariest night of my life. And I didn't sleep. And I called my husband the next morning and said, this isn't going to help. Nothing's going to help. Please come get me. Please come get me. I, I, I'm, this is crazy. And he said, Heather, I, I, I took you there to get help. Just see the doctor. Just talk to your doctor. And then if, if you don't feel better after that, then, then I'll come and get you. So a couple hours later, I sat across from this man who was the first person first. And I had seen a ton of psychiatrists up to this point, but he was the first man who sat there and wasn't scribbling as I, as I talked. And he was just like, you poor woman. I know exactly what to do for you. I've been treating women for 30 years with this exact condition. And he put me on a cocktail of medication that would normally knock out a herd of elephants. <laughs> and because you're in the hospital and they're watching you, you can take therapeutic dosages immediately. And that cocktail made it so that I could sit still. It made it so that I could actually sit still for the first time in six and a half months. And two hours after taking the first dosage of those medication, my husband came up to see me in the hospital and he couldn't believe the difference. He said, this is the first time I've seen you in seven months. Welcome back. So was the doctor absolutely positive that what you were suffering from was postpartum? Oh, yes. It was classic postpartum. It manifested itself in, in anxiety. And I was on the verge of a psychosis is basically what, what was happening. So this is really just a, a, a well, ju there's no just here. This is really a hormonal imbalance that creates this tremendous sadness and depression. Right. I find it so ironic that there are some men in the world that, that, that talk about postpartum being something imaginary. <laughs> you, know, you hear these accounts of people's struggle and, and it, it is clearly so real. Over the years, I've gotten the sense that you, you've become a bit of an activist for mental health causes. Would you say that that's true? Yes, actually, I, a very Mormon way of putting it would be, I believe it's my calling in life, is to help destigmatize mental illness. The best email that I get, and I get a lot of great email, but the best email that I get is from sisters and brothers and husbands who say, thank you for writing about what you've gone through, because now I know that what my wife or my sister or my brother is going through is not imaginary or in his head and that I shouldn't tell him to just get over it. And I feel like I'm advocating for people who don't know how to convince other people that what they're feeling is real. And I think my husband has provided a, a service in the, in the sense that he stuck by me. You know, I, I did some pretty awful things to him in those six and a half months that I'm not proud of. You threw a gallon of milk at his head? Is that true? That was one of the things I threw at his head, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. It's I just funny had this now. picture. Yeah, exactly. In, in the book, as, as you leave the hospital, there seemed to be, I did feel the sort of characteristic, humorous Heather reemerge. Um, there's one other excerpt I want to read for our listeners about how it felt after you started to get help. So, and this is the last excerpt I'm going to read. And you write, I felt good about going home. I felt that there was an open road in front of me, a road to joy and happiness. I felt like I had a new perspective on things that was what the hospital stay had provided me, perspective. 
It had also provided me an appreciation for my regular toothpaste and deodorant. The first time I brushed my teeth with the hospital toothpaste, I gagged and was certain I had grabbed a tube of ointment instead of toothpaste, perhaps the kind you might apply to an open wound or a swollen anus. It couldn't have been safe for my mouth. And the deodorant. They gave me deodorant that smelled like the shavings that line the bottom of a gerbil cage. I smelled like a gerbil. <laughs> I can see why John said, welcome back, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So let's talk a little bit about your blog. You have the most, one of the most successful personal blogs in the world. And several years ago, you were able to support your family with the ads that you started running on the site. And at the time, I know some of your readers were upset. I know that you do get a lot of both very positive mail and, and some hate mail. Um, do you think they're still upset about that? If they're still upset about it and they haven't stopped reading, then they probably should seek some help. <laughs> I think most people most people are pretty over it by now because advertising on blogs is so ubiquitous. At the time, I was one of the first personal blogs, and it took me a long time to get up the courage to accept advertising because I knew that people were going to be upset about it. But it seems as if some of your readers are more critical of you in general than other popular bloggers, and I really can't figure out why. Would, would you agree with that? I'm sure everybody gets their fair share. I think it has a lot to do with my success and that it somehow diminishes their own or, you know, the fact that I'm, who do I think I am making money off of my writing, talking about poop and boobs and, you Can know, you believe it? Can you believe it? The nerve of that woman. For a very brief time, you put up a, a separate site called Monetizing the Hate. And those comments just had me on the floor, like, holding my sides screeching it was they were so funny can i tell you that the day that we launched monetizing the hate was the biggest trafficked day on my website in the history of my website <laughs> bigger than when i was featured on oprah i mean the hate really people loved it <laughs> <laughs> would you mind if i read one or two of the Not comments because they're so i mean i can't believe that people would do would write this kind of thing so this was, I guess this came right after you started uh, running your ads. Um, I'm disgusted by the new advertisements at the bottom of each post. How pathetic are you? Are you really that greedy for money that you're selling yourself and your previously interesting blog out? The point of your old blog was to get your thoughts out there, and now it's what? To make more money and be an advertising slave? I'm done reading. Congratulations on your bullshit, Heather. P.S. Your husband made a mistake. <laughs> 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 do these things make you feel bad? Do they? I mean, I can laugh at them because they're not about me. I do feel a little bit sort of kind of squirmy even laughing with you, though, because they were written to you. And I can't imagine why, if somebody was that upset, they would have to take the time to do this. They just not read your work anymore. Why, why do you think they have this reaction to you? Whenever anybody asks me about my website, like, well, what is your website and should I go read it? And I'm, well, you know, be prepared to either really love it or really, really, really hate it. I've been dealing with it for so long that I have developed a pretty big calloused skin toward it. And I, I try to avoid it. I try to avoid it now because all it is is just noise. I was featured in the New York Times two or three weeks ago. And um, there'll be another round of people online talking and saying awful things about me. And really the only thing that makes me stop and hurt for a few minutes is when people question my ability as a mother or my intentions as a mother. Even now though, I'll hurt for a few minutes and then I'm over it. Whereas, you know, five or six years ago, I was in bed for two days. 
you know, now it's just about five minutes of being like, well, that was hurtful. And then just going on with, with the rest of my day. Is it true that you used to print out the negative comments and run them over with your car? Yes, it is. I would print them <laughs> out on paper, get in my car, <laughs> run them over. It, just, it was just a physical action of being able to do something about it. <laughs> So you've just celebrated the 10th anniversary of your blog. You have millions of readers. Deuce is in the Urban Dictionary. You were declared the 26th most influential woman in media by Forbes magazine. And the word deuce was even featured as the answer to a question on Jeopardy. Was the trajectory of success with all things do something that at one point you began to hope for? Or has this really just been an organic journey of of deuce? This really, truly, honestly has been an organic roller coaster ride. Nothing is really ever pre-planned when it comes to this website. You know, I never intended to write a book and I've written a book and I never intended to be on Oprah and I was on Oprah and... I'm just as surprised as everybody else by the whole thing and just as knocked off my feet um, because I really am at the heart of this, just this little Southern girl <coughs> who grew up Mormon and, and, and uh, repented of her first kiss is experiencing <laughs> all of this. <laughs> it's very much a surprise. Now, I read in an article, I think the week before last, you said that Facebook wasn't around when you launched your site and that you were glad it wasn't or else you wouldn't be where you are today. And I was wondering why. Why would Facebook have changed your trajectory? I think really because I started my website to keep in touch with my friends. It was, hey, you guys, I found this cool new band you know, that I, I saw live last week. You guys should check them out. Or I'm watching this on television. And because of the format of the blog because there wasn't like an easy update button, I was actually hand coding my website and uploading manually to an FTP site at Earthlink. Um, I had <laughs> wow. a space to write paragraphs and paragraphs and stories and I developed storytelling. Having the blog enabled me to, to tell stories. And I think that if I had used Facebook, I never would have seen the potential in there. So let's talk about the design of the site. In addition to all of your writing, you also design all of the mastheads. How do you decide what you want the masthead to be each month? It's actually, I sit sit down and I open some of my favorite design blogs and I just start clicking around and looking for inspiration. And once I find something that clicks, I'll take a color or a pattern and I'll open up Photoshop and just really start from scratch. That's always kind of been the way I've approached graphic design is just to start with one element and go from there. You've also become quite a good photographer and now feature a daily photograph of your dogs. The presence of Chuck is particularly compelling. He's your nine-year-old super mutt. You also have a three-year-old miniature Australian shepherd. You feature many pictures of Chuck in various unusual outfits. Last week, I believe you had him in your red pumps. Uh, You have many where you're balancing objects on Chuck's head. These include food, various hats and wigs, diapers, plastic toys. There was a picture of Chuck with a plastic funnel balanced on his head in your recent calendar. How do you get Chuck to let you do this? Well, Chuck is a very special spirit who was brought to the earth to entertain thousands of people. I truly truly believe that. Yep. 
I remember during my boredom and, and frustration and anxiety of my first year of parenthood of not knowing what I was doing, I would try to entertain my daughter by putting things on Chuck's head. And I discovered that he had the ability to balance things on his head. I mean, I, I've got pictures of him balancing actual full beer bottles on his head. Wow. And amazing. we would just try to, you know, what else can we do? What, what we would challenge ourselves to come up with something bigger. And, and so I think that we stopped short of the KitchenAid, um, <laughs> but you know, he probably could do it. He's just, he's, um, he'll do anything for a piece of cheese. <laughs> well, he's, he's a delicious part of the site. Thank you. One of the last things I want to ask you about is the Maytag incident. For the listeners that might not be aware of the Maytag incident, can can you describe it? The Maytag incident. I know. You know, if, from what I understand, there's another new term. You have to be deuced, but you also have to be Maytagged. <laughs> yeah. Um, I purchased, we purchased a brand new washing machine about the time that my second daughter was born because the one that we had just stopped working. And we knew that we were going to be faced with mountains and mountains of laundry. So we wanted a top-of-the-line machine. We bought the 10-year warranty. We wanted something that was going to get us through those first crucial months of the menacing monster of laundry. And it got delivered and within two weeks broke. And I went through every possible channel that a consumer has to get it fixed. We called a repairman out three times and he ordered the part. He ordered the wrong part three times and... It was just a nightmare from beginning to end. And three months, two or three months into it, I mean, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks without a functioning washing machine, I finally sat down and called the place where we bought it. They referred me to headquarters. I called headquarters, uh, got put through a bunch of people. And finally, when they basically said, we can't help you, we'll send someone out in three to five days and then we'll take a look at it. I said, listen, I have done everything I possibly can do at this point other than do you know what Twitter is? And if I say something on Twitter, will you help me? Well, yes, we know what Twitter is, and no, we're not going to help you. So I hung up the phone. <laughs> they didn't know who they were talking to. <laughs> <laughs> I hung up the phone, and I, you know, I, I drank a, a very large glass of water, and I composed myself. And very uncharacteristically, I didn't use any curse words in, in the Twitters that ensued. But I sat down, and I think there were, there's a total of six or seven where I say, do not ever buy a Maytag. Ours is broken. Remember the Maytag that we just bought? It's still broken. R.I.P. Our Maytag washing machine. And it got retweeted and retweeted and retweeted. And within the day, Home Depot had contacted me. Lowe's had contacted me. Bosch offered me a free washing machine. And I finally had the cell phone number of the general manager at Maytag Corporation. And they had my washing machine fixed within 24 hours. There was a bit of a brouhaha online following this incident, and Forbes wrote a piece uh, titled, A Twitterati Calls Out Whirlpool. Um, and they quoted one of the bloggers that was upset about what you did. Um, she apparently said, with great power comes great responsibility. One blogger, MommyMelee.com, wrote, do other real-world celebrities go on Twitter and bitch about brands? Asked blogger Anna Veal on somethingsomething.com. I don't think so. And actually, they do. Actually, they do. <laughs> Piers Morgan yesterday actually. took on Delta. I don't know if you saw that debacle. Yes, yes <laughs> actually, they do. Um, do you feel that that was an overreaction by other bloggers? 
Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, those specific bloggers that you just mentioned are looking for any way, any way to say, oh, gosh, here she goes again. What I was trying to prove in trying to get my washing machine fixed was, listen, we have a platform now. And I don't, I really, when I'm searching for something to buy, the people that I ask are the friends that I have online. I don't really listen to commercials anymore. I'm listening to my friends whose opinions that I trust on this platform. And I've heard so many stories since then of people getting help when they needed it because they went to Twitter and said, listen, I'm having trouble with Comcast. Could someone help me? And Comcast has a team of people who sit on Twitter and look for problems so that they can hop on top of it immediately. I was trying to prove that, hey, we can all be empowered because we don't have to take it anymore. You know, I had exhausted every possible option I had and they still weren't going to fix my washing machine. So now they do. (laughs) Yeah, I actually think that one of the beauties of Twitter is that it keeps people highly accountable to their actions because so much of it can be reported and shared and analyzed. But I, I was wondering if you felt that if you were in the same situation again, if you would have done the same thing. Yes, absolutely. Would I do it again? No. But I would I if I were in the same situation back then, I still would have done it. Yes. I think I proved my point that I don't want to be the person who goes on Twitter and complains about anything that's broken. <laughs> but um, for me, it was a social experiment while trying to get my machine fixed. So, Heather, in, in the New York Times article, they referred to you as the queen of the mommy bloggers. And this was in the New York Times magazine section several weeks ago. But as I mentioned before, I can't imagine that you ever would have plan to be the queen of the mommy bloggers, nor do I really see your blog as a mommy blog. I don't have children. I know a lot of men that read your blog. How would you describe your blog and and what do you think it's really about? I think my blog is more of a lifestyle blog. It's about my life. It always has been. It's always about the funny stories in my life. When I sit down to write, I always feel like What would I want to talk to my girlfriends about on a Friday night if we all sat down to have chips and and beer? You know, what would be the stories that I would tell them? And that's what I have in my mind when I sit down to write on my website is I'm sitting around with a bunch of friends and I want to make them laugh. Here's the hysterical, you know, mishaps of my week. And we can all sit down and sort of get a catharsis from laughing about, you know, stuff that goes wrong in life. <laughs> With some poop thrown in yes. and some appliances <laughs> that don't work. When you're a parent, you, so much of your life is dedicated to poop. It's, it's not even funny. <laughs> um, last question. Um, you've written a New York Times bestselling book. You have this wildly popular blog. Is there a deuce television show or a movie in the works next? Not that I know of. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there is. I think oh, that you. the Deuce family reality TV show would be an immediate hit. <laughs> I'm not sure that would bring much good to the world. I want. I want to. I want to do as much good as I possibly can, and and inviting people in to see, you know, me in various stages of undress is would not be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Heather. Thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Design Matters. You can follow Heather Armstrong on her blog, www.doce.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This episode of Design Matters originally dropped on April 1st, 2011. 
Heather Armstrong passed away on May 9, 2023. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the Masters in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.